0: This is Kick-Ass Politics. I'm Ben Mathis. If you're listening for the first time, this is a preview station for Kick-Ass Politics where I put up a few sample episodes for you to check out. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you like it, then I encourage you to go to our main program at Kick-Ass Politics and subscribe to the show. There are a lot more episodes there. Just search for Kick-Ass Politics on iTunes, or if you go to the information page for this episode on iTunes, there's a link right there to subscribe to the main show. Also, feel free to check out our webpage at kickasspolitics.com, where you'll find show notes, book recommendations, and all kinds of extras. I'm Ben Mathis, and I hope you enjoy this preview of Kick-Ass Politics. Kick-Ass Politics is brought to you by Fiverr. You've heard me rave about Fiverr before. Fiverr is the world's largest online marketplace for services with over 100,000 categories all offered for a fixed base price of just $5. Logo design, business consulting, marketing, business cards, stationary web design, translation, transcription, proofreading, legal consulting, and just about any other service you can imagine all offered at a base price of just $5. And right now, when you go to kickasspolitics.com and click on the Fiverr ad on our sponsor page, you'll be showing our sponsor that you support the show and you'll get some great offers on services tailored to your needs. Whatever you need done, find it on Fiverr. Hi, folks. Welcome to the podcast. My guest today is Stephen Hadley. His 36-year career in national security and defense stretches all the way back to the Gerald Ford administration when he served on the National Security Council to President Ford. In 1987, President Ronald Reagan appointed him as counsel to the Tower Commission, which investigated the Iran-Contra affair. During the presidency of George H.W. Bush, Hadley served as the Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Policy under then-Secretary of Defense Dick Cheney. From 2001 to 2005, he was Deputy National Security Advisor under Condoleezza Rice until she was appointed Secretary of State and he replaced her as the National Security Advisor to President Bush from 2005 to 2009. Stephen Hadley is currently Chairman of the United States Institute for Peace, and he's a partner in the international consulting firm of Rice-Hadley Gates, along with former Bush administration colleagues Condoleezza Rice and former Secretary of Defense Robert Gates. In just a moment, I'll talk to him about the state of U.S. national security, as well as ISIS, Russia, and more. Stay tuned.
1: Hollywood to Washington, it's time for Kick-Ass Politics. And now here's your host, Ben Mathis.
0: So Stephen Hadley, thank you so much for joining me today. You have had a long career in defense and national security that stretches all the way back to the Nixon administration. You have seen Vietnam, you've seen the Cold War, you've seen both Iraq wars and Afghanistan. How dangerous a place is the world today?
1: It's, uh, it's, a, it's a troubling place. It's a challenging place for us. If you kind of look back and say where we've been the last 25 years or so, uh, through the good efforts of President Reagan, President George H.W. Bush, actually Mikhail Gorbachev and others, the Cold War ended. Uh, the Soviet Union broke up. Communism was largely discredited. And we had really a decade of the 90s, which was kind of an escape from responsibility. We didn't have a whole lot of challenges in that period. And then, of course, 9-11 happens. We have this enormous terrorist threat to the United States. But by the end of 2008, 9, and 10, that's also pretty well in hand. Um, we have, we've gone through a difficult time in Afghanistan, difficult time in Iraq. We've, at the end of 2008, 2009, Iraq was pretty stable. We had defeated al-Qaeda in Iraq, um, and the country was pretty feeling pretty safe from terror. And um, what's really happened since then uh, in the period of sort of 2011 to 2014 is we now have three big challenges. The Islamic terrorism is back, now in the form of the Islamic state, which is even more brutal than al-Qaeda was, uh, and they uh, now control a chunk of territory in Iraq and Syria and have put themselves at the forefront of the Islamic movement which is an ideology very hostile to freedom and free markets and is um, trying to reorder the Middle East in its own image we have President Putin in Ukraine who has really challenged the post-cold War to order uh, and is using force to change borders and coerce states to move in the direction of uh, Russian, becoming more uh, Russia satellites, than moving and becoming part of Western institutions. And finally, we have the challenge of the emergence of China uh, as an economic powerhouse and increasingly a military and diplomatic powerhouse in Asia. Now, these are all challenges to the United States. In some sense, uh, particularly China can be an opportunity for the United States, but it is going to require some courage. It's going to require some visionary leadership, we're going to be at these challenges for a long time. So the, the – if you will, the, the holidays of the 1990s are over. We have some serious challenges. It's going to require us to be smart in how we do our foreign policy, but it's also going to re- require us to get our economy going, uh, getting our politics beginning to uh, solve some of the real challenges we face here at home and reestablish – What uh, President Reagan talked about, which was America as an example for the world where uh, freedom, democracy, and free markets is producing a, a better life for our people. And all the world can see that and can see the power of our ideas and principles.
0: You brought up China. Early in the Obama administration, there was an effort to get us out of the Middle East pretty much as soon as possible and pivot toward Asia. Does ISIS change our mathematics? On that now, I think it
1: does. Um, President Obama w- desperately wanted to, I think, um, end uh, a decade of of fairly uh, strenuous U.S. engagement in the Middle East uh, to pull back, uh, and uh, unfortunately, f- uh, from the standpoint of that policy, the events that, in some sense, were unleashed in the Syrian civil war that began in 2011 which destabilized the neighborhood and opened the door to the return of al-Qaeda, events have really conspired to draw the United States back uh, in towards dealing with the the consequences of the rise of Islamic terrorism and the breakdown of states that occurred after the Arab awakening. So we have real interests in the Middle East. Those are threatened. We need to re-engage in the Middle East – But that doesn't mean we disengage from Asia. You know, if you're the United States of America, you've got to be now committed in providing leadership in Europe, in the Middle East, and in Asia. Uh, But these also, I would say, these places are linked, and that is to say the credibility of American policy in Asia and our ability to deal with China in Asia is going to depend very much in some sense about how we deal with the challenge of President Putin in Ukraine and how do we deal with the challenge of ISIS in the Middle East.
0: I have to think that Vladimir Putin just loves this. Anything in the Middle East or anywhere else that can distract us from Russia works in his favor. How big of a threat to us is Russia? And how, how do we deal with them? Uh, you know, Early in the Obama administration, they attempted a reset with Russia. That has clearly failed. How do we go forward with Russia?
1: Well, the uh, I, I think we have the start of a policy there, but it is not— Uh, complete. Uh, We saw um, Russia going into Georgia in 2008. Uh, We've now seen them take the Crimea in 2013, threatening Ukraine itself, uh, occupying a part of eastern Ukraine in 2014. Um, We have got to put in place a set of measures, a family of measures, if you will, that will both deter President Putin and Russia from doing similar launching similar kind of subversion operations either elsewhere in Ukraine or in places like the Baltic states and will reduce the leverage he has over these places and finally convince him that the strategic costs Russia is paying for this kind of adventurism do not justify the gains that they're achieving. Now, how do you do that? Well, one of the ways we have to do it is we have to uh, strengthen NATO, recommit NATO to the defense of Europe. We need to st- to station American troops and and uh, and other NATO troops in Poland, the Baltic states, Romania, and the Balkans, so that President Putin understands that if he begins to invade or conduct subversive operations in these areas. He's liable to come face to face with American and NATO troops. I think that's the only thing that's going to deter him. We've got to try to help Ukraine succeed as a state that can provide better life for its people. We have to not let his occupation of eastern Ukraine prevent us from responding positively to the desire of the Ukrainian people to move towards Western institutions, towards the EU, ultimately towards NATO. We need to help Ukraine get greater energy independence from Russia. We need to help basically all of Central and Eastern Europe and even Western Europe reduce its dependent on Russian energy sources because that will reduce President Putin's leverage. All of this we need to do to deter him, to convince him that this strategy he's pursuing is not in his interest and, at the end of the day, isn't a winning hand. At the same time, we have to recognize that there are historical economic relations between Ukraine and Russia. And so the trick is, can we take Ukraine, help it stabilize, help it move towards the West if it wants to do so, but in a way that does not um, – undermine, that does not destroy the existing economic relationships between Ukraine and Russia. You know, it, the, the best of all possible worlds would be if the United States, the EU and Russia and the Ukrainians were all going to cooperate to try to stabilize Ukraine and make it a successful uh, and prosperous state. Regrettably, that doesn't seem to be what President Putin has in mind.
0: Well, we're going to take a short break now, and then I'll be back for more with the former National Security Advisor to the President, Stephen Hadley. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with former National Security Advisor Stephen Hadley. And if you are, then I think you'd enjoy a book called Duty, Memoirs of a Secretary at War. By Mr. Hadley's colleague, former Secretary of Defense Robert M. Gates. And right now you can download the audio version of his book for free with a special promotion for our listeners from Audible.com. Just go to AudibleTrial.com. Backslash Kickass Politics for a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook download, which can be duty, memoirs of a secretary at war, or any of Audible's 180,000 titles for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, iPad, or MP3 player. That's Audible trial. Dot com backslash kickasspolitics or click on their sponsor link on our webpage at kickasspolitics.com to download the free audio book of your choice. And while you're there, help keep us on the air by clicking the donate button to donate to our GoFundMe campaign or visit gofundme.com backslash kickasspolitics. Your support will help keep us producing new and even more interesting programs in the future. That's GoFundMe dot com backslash kickass politics or just click the donate button on our website and now back to the show i'm back with former national security advisor to the president stephen hadley you brought up syria some people in the administration these days in the obama administration feel that with everything that's going on, particularly in Syria and Iraq, that maybe it's time to reconsider Bashar al-Assad and consider uh, somehow building stronger relations with him. It's essentially the idea of, uh, is the enemy of my enemy my friend now, all of a sudden? I think we really cannot go there. If
1: you look at um, a lot of efforts were made uh, in 2005, five, six, and seven by European leaders, by uh, Teria Rod larson who was then the UN representative for Syria, a lot of efforts were made to reach out to Assad to get him to reform, uh, to get him to act more responsibly, and they all failed. They all failed. Uh, the notion that Assad is a some was somehow a closet reformer, I think, was sadly disproved by his failure to perform. And what we've seen since 2011 is a man who is made war on his own people, killed 200,000 of them, displaced either within the country or outside the country, probably 40 percent of his population, set back their infrastructure and the economy by decades. And the idea that you would somehow consent to a person who has done that to his own country, to retaining power and even cooperating them with him even against something as threatening as ISIS— I think is morally obscene and would send a terrible lesson to the world. And the lesson it would send to the world is if you are brutal enough and kill enough of your people and uh, destroy enough of that society, the international community will let you stay in power. That's a lesson we should not be teaching anybody in the world.
0: Well, early on in the civil war in Syria, it's felt that we had a window of opportunity and a partner to work with there were good guys that we should have been supporting do they even exist anymore at this point have we missed our chance well one of the sad things about this is that the uprising
1: of course began very peaceably and courageously in 2011 where people would demonstrate against Assad demonstrate against the brutality and the lack of respect he showed for his own people they would go to the mosques on Friday. They would leave the mosque. A couple dozen of them would be killed by Assad's people. Uh, and they nonetheless uh, kept it peaceful. Once it turns violence, uh, the problem is the longer it goes, the more people die, the more sectarian it becomes, the more you open the door for radicals uh, like uh, uh, the uh, al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. The opposition elements, the more moderate, the more democratic opposition elements have been fighting a two-front battle because they've been attacked by the Islamic extremists and they've been attacked by the Assad regime. Uh, Both of those groups, the Assad regime getting weapons and support from Iran and Russia and the Islamic extremists getting support from the the, the Arab and the Muslim world – Both of those have had ample arms and money, and the group that has been starved of weapons and support are the moderates, and this has been that way for a a number of years. Um, They are clearly on the defensive. They are clearly dramatically weakened. The administration now is trying to reengage with them, to rebuild them. Uh, It's going to take a long period of time. We're late to the party, so it's late. Is it too late? I hope not, because if it's too late, then I'm not sure what the options are for trying to stabilize Syria over the long term.
0: Well, you spent eight years uh, as an integral part of the war against Al Qaeda. Who is the greater threat today to to our U.S. national interests, Al Qaeda or ISIS? I think they are both threats, uh,
1: serious threats. Um, I think they are both in some sense vying for the leadership of the Islamic extremist community. One of the things I worry about is if you're vying for leadership and you want to show the world you're the biggest dog on the hill, one of the best ways to do that is to mount a successful terrorist attack on the homeland of the United States. Uh, So I think we have to worry about the competition potentially between the two. I notice the press is reporting that al-Nusra, the principal al Qaeda element in Syria, and the Islamic State have now agreed to cooperate uh, against uh, 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 our, the, uh, the uh, opposition elements that we would be training against us in Iraq. Um, that's not good news either. So I think uh, they are both a enormous threat to stability in the region, to our friends and allies in the region, and to the homeland of the United States. And regrettably, we're going to have to deal with both of them.
0: Does the competition between these various terrorist groups, does that present an opportunity for us? I don't really think so. Uh, I don't
1: think you can back one terrorist group against another. Terrorist groups are terrorist groups. They have an ideology that is completely inconsistent with ours, that is threatened by ours. And at some point, they will come for us.
0: Um, when, when I said that, I, I actually I should have clarified, I'm, I meant in the sense of does, does instability uh, it, amongst these groups and infighting, does that pre- present any opportunities for us?
1: I think the real opportunity is for us to showcase the behavior of these terrorist groups when they are able to take control of real estate or get, jer- get control over people. They run a brutal regime that does not respect the dignity of the people that they control. They do mass beheadings, mass killing of tribes that have are suspected of being disloyal, forced marriages, abuse of women. I think the best opportunity we have is to get the world and particularly the people of the Middle East to understand what life is like under these terrorist groups. I think if we can do that, And then show them some hope that if they rise up against those terrorist groups, they will have our support and they will actually win. Uh, I think that's the best thing we can do. And I think that's the best opportunity ultimately for turning the people of the Middle East against these
0: extremists. You mentioned real estate. One of the things that you've pointed out in the past is that when we were fighting al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, they didn't have a lot of resources. Now we have an enemy who is getting increasing access to, as you say, greater real estate and resources. And that's what makes ISIS really so formidable
1: and, in some sense, um, a more substantial threat at the moment than is al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda really has not uh, controlled territory since 2001 when they were expelled from Afghanistan. ISIS now controls uh, or the Islamic State controls enormous amount of territory in Syria and Iraq. That territory has oil resources and uh, um, refining stations and drilling stations. They are taking oil out of the ground. They are selling it on the black market. They have there a revenue source that they control. Um, They have – knocked off uh, a number of the banks that are in that area and seized the assets and the cash. They have an ongoing kidnapping and extortion regime. One of the problems is because they control territory, they are now fairly self-funding. Because they have seized weapons, many of them American weapons that were left by Iraqi soldiers as they retreated in the face of ISIS, they are now not just a terrorist organization. They actually have elements uh, and characteristics of a conventional army. And because they control territory, they are now – it gives them an enormous propaganda edge in terms of recruiting money and followers from, who are inclined towards Islamic extremism. So all those things together make them in, in some sense a much more formidable force uh, even than al-Qaeda was in 2001, two and three.
0: Well, with this increased instability in the Middle East, I'm curious, at the end of the day, was the Arab Spring a net positive or a net negative for U.S. national interests? Don't know, because it's not over. Um, The Arab Spring
1: represents the desire of many people in the Middle East um, to throw off um, military-based authoritarian regimes that were not respecting their people and were not delivering for them jobs and the better life that they hoped for. And you saw them, you know, first in Tunisia and then in Libya, then in Egypt, uh, and now the ongoing struggle in Syria. So um, it, you know, this was an an upwelling of the people of the region for a, a better life and an opportunity for freedom and for Uh, the kinds of benefits of jobs and and prosperity that they had hoped for. It's come a cropper. Um, (laughs) Some cases, as in Egypt, there seems to be a falling back to a more uh, authoritarian, military-backed regime. Um, In other places, such as uh, Libya and, of course, Syria, it's descended into chaos and nobody likes chaos. Uh, and in some sense, uh, it is, people will then go for authoritarian solutions simply to stop the fighting. So there's not a lot of good news at the moment. One place where uh, the Arab awakening seems to be working is Tunisia, uh, a small country but one that has sort of had a national dialogue that has included all elements of society that has developed a constitution, an electoral path forward. Uh, And if Tunisia can help, can make it and we should be doing all we can to help them succeed, this would be an example that other countries in the Middle East may be able to look to in what is going to be a generational process of trying to stabilize that part of the world and also to give the people of that world an opportunity to have a greater control over their lives and governments that will provide a, a, a better life for their people. But it's going to be a long process. But we have a stake on how it comes out, and that is why I think disengaging from the Middle East is so profoundly contrary to our interests.
0: Right. Well, two of the things that you've been a big proponent of these days are you've said that we've spent 60 years investing in our military, but we have not made and we do need to make an equal investment in infrastructure and civilian capabilities in these countries and investing in conflict prevention in uh, places like Yemen and Somalia and support to post-revolutionary states like Tunisia, Libya and Egypt, as you mentioned. For so many years, it seems nation building has been a dirty word. Do we need to rebrand that? How do we approach these nations as a partner and not with the stigma of being an imperialist?
1: Well, that, of course, is is critical. If if we are not working with the people of these countries to achieve the kind of societies they want for themselves and their children, uh, we're, we're going to fail. Um, I think the point we have to recognize is that if – uh, the United States and our allies in the region are successful in rolling back the Islamic State first in Iraq and ultimately in Syria, then you're going to have two societies that have – are going to be – have been battered by conflict and by division and sectarianism. And the question is uh, that the agenda then will be can we stabilize these societies? Can we keep them from breaking up into war and factions? Can we establish – good governance, inclusive governance, non-corrupt that can win the support of their people and begin to provide the services and jobs that give them a, a, a better life. We don't do this as some kind of humanitarian gesture. We do it because of hard national security interests, and the hard national security interests are this. If we cannot, after pushing out ISIS or the Islamic State, stabilize these societies in the way I describe, then they are going to become training grounds and breeding grounds for terrorism for generations to come. and Ultimately, those terrorists will direct their ire against the United States. So I'm not talking about nation building as some kind of foreign assistance or magnanimous gesture. I am talking about trying to help societies stabilize themselves so they do not continue to be training ground from terror that threatens the national security of the United States.
0: Well, I know you have to go, and I appreciate your joining us. One last quick question. On a scale of 1 to 10, what is the status of our national security in your mind?
1: Well, I think we have um, made progress against terror. We're safer but not yet safe. I think we have challenges uh, in Europe, in the Middle East, in Asia. They are formidable challenges. But I am great confidence in the United States. Uh, I think if we are willing to step forward, to provide global leadership, to have uh, tough but wise policies, if we can uh, – fix our domestic problems here at home, get our political institutions working, getting our economy growing, producing jobs. Um, We have enormous resources, the United States does. Our biggest resource, of course, is the ingenuity and wisdom of the American people. We can handle these things, but we've got to pay attention. We've got to get focused here on home, and we've got to be willing to lead effectively abroad. If we do that, uh, we can handle these problems.
0: Well, Stephen Hadley, it's been fascinating. Thank you so much for joining me. Nice to be with you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Stephen Hadley, and I want to thank him again for coming on the podcast. Um, I also feel that I kind of owe him a bit of an apology uh, for asking him probably the the stupidest question of his career when I asked him to rate the state of national security on a scale of one to ten. Uh, It only later occurred to me that if the National Security Advisor to the President were to rate our national security on a scale of 1 to 10, it might be tantamount to raising our alert status to DEFCON 1, or Homeland Security raising the terror advisory alert to RED. Uh, So thankfully, Stephen Hadley was responsible enough to avoid directly answering that question, and uh, no jets were scrambled, no nukes were launched. Uh, But I apologize for putting him on the spot like that. Silly me. Um, I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review on iTunes for a chance to win my book of the week. And if you get a chance, check out our sponsor, Gold Medal Wine Club. Since 1992, they've been America's leading independent wine club. They feature the really unique and hard-to-find boutique wineries, the kind of wines that you won't find at your grocery store. And virtually every wine they sell meets their strict selection criteria that includes multiple medals from major wine competitions and high ratings from wine spectator, wine enthusiast, and other national wine publications. And right now, if you go to the show site at kickasspolitics.com and click on the special link, Gold Medal Wine Club will give you up to 45% off wines rated 90 points and up, plus free shipping. And hey, if you're a beer snob, they've got you covered too. With Craft Beer of the Month Club, they discover exceptional craft brews from all over the world and deliver them right to your door every month. And they've also got special deals for listeners of Kick-Ass Politics, including free shipping and bonus gifts for just our listeners. So go to kickasspolitics.com click on the special link for these sponsors and my friends at Gold Medal Wines and Craft Beer of the Month Club will hook you up. Now, if you like Kick-Ass Politics and you want to support the show, then I hope you'll make a donation to our GoFundMe campaign at gofundme.com backslash kickasspolitics or you can go to the show website at kickasspolitics.com and click on the donate link. I'll tell you folks, this podcast is a labor of love for me. But there are a lot of expenses associated with producing a podcast every week like this. And I'd love to be able to produce three or even four podcasts a week for our listeners. And your support will help us increase that weekly output and give you new and even more interesting programs. So if you can, give us a hand and donate at gofundme.com backslash kickasspolitics or visit the link on our site. In the next episode, it's the 50th anniversary of the death of Winston Churchill. And I'll be joined again by Dr. Stephen F. Hayward, author of Churchill on Leadership, to talk about some of the qualities that made Churchill one of the greatest leaders of all time and how we can apply those lessons to our lives. So tune in for the next podcast. But for now, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass Politics. Kick-Ass Politics is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.